Hello, and we are so excited that you've joined us today. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Uh, you're in for a great presentation today with our excellent faculty who do their best to make sense of all of this. Uh, for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, we do welcome you back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020, so two years later, we are incredibly grateful for the progress we've all made in managing patients during this pandemic. So, okay, so here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. For those of you who have been with us since last year, you might recognize them. And for our new learners, um, please meet Dr. Alwater and Dr. Klimple. Uh, thank you both of you for taking time out of your busy practices to be here today. Uh, delighted, uh, Faith. Thanks for having me. And here are our faculty's disclosures. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Please note that the material presented in this program is current as of April 6th of 2022. So if you're watching this or listening to this on demand, um, please do refer to the NIH and IDSA treatment guideline websites for the most contemporary information. Uh, the learning objective for today's program is to describe current management strategies and identify potential treatments for patients with COVID-19 requiring hospitalization. I will hand uh, the presentation over to Dr. Klimple. So Dr. Klimple, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Faith. So first and foremost, um, we have been dealing with this pandemic together for over two years now. Um, there have been several spikes, most recently the Omicron spike. Um, and as we have dealt with COVID-19 together, um, more data has been coming out um, and we have been changing our therapeutics, changing our diagnostics as uh, we have learned more and more about this virus. The first thing that we're going to be talking about during this webinar is anticoagulation, though this entire webinar is geared towards hospitalized patients. So this is a summary slide of what we're going to be talking about in terms of anticoagulation therapy. Um, the big takeaways from this is if you're a hospitalized patient um, and do not require supplemental oxygen, normal prophylactic doses of unfractionated or low, or low molecular weight heparin are fine unless contraindicated. If you are a hospitalized patient who is on low flow oxygen and your D-dimer is above the upper limit of normal and you are non-pregnant and you have no increased bleeding risks, there is an indication for therapeutic anticoagulation. Now, this recommendation for therapeutic anticoagulation is not retained in people who are on high flow, non-invasive ventilation, invasive ventilation, or ECMO. For patients like that who are critically ill and unstable, they need to go back down from therapeutic to prophylactic anticoagulation. And we'll talk about the studies that drive that data right now. So, the first study that I'd like to talk about is called the HEP-COVID trial. This was a smaller trial, 257 hospitalized patients, and they picked patients who were at very high risk of venous thromboembolism or arterial thromboembolism. They picked patients who had a D-dimer at or above four times the upper limit of normal, um, or 
patients who had a sepsis-induced coagulopathy score of four or more, um, which was uh, essentially uh, getting points for labs consistent with DIC or impending DIC. Um, they excluded people who needed full-dose anticoagulation for other reasons, people on dual antiplatelet therapy, or patients who bled over the past month, or patients with severe liver or kidney disease or with severe thrombocytopenia. Um, their outcome was venous thromboembolism or arterial thromboembolism. They also looked at bleeding. And what they found was 52 patients in the control group suffered from arterial or venous thromboembolism or death, whereas only 37 patients in the treatment arm, the treatment arm received one milligram per kilogram of Lovenox BID. Um, there were four more bleeding episodes in the treatment arm than the control arm, all of which were patients in the ICU. And what they came out with was the number needed to treat to prevent a clot was eight uh, in terms of giving therapeutic anticoagulation. But this was a smaller study. Um, when you look at a larger study, um, so this was a triad of three, treat, of three uh, trials that were lumped together, uh, the ATT&CK, the ACTIV-4A, and the REMAP-CAP, um, each with slightly different inclusion and, and exclusion criteria. They looked at hospitalized patients not in the ICU, stratified based on D-dimer. They excluded patients who were thought to be discharged in 72 hours, dual antiplatelet therapy, or high risk for bleeding. And they gave therapeutic heparin for 14 days or until discharge. They looked at death or organ support-free days. And what they found was that 76.6% of patients in the control arm met their primary endpoint of organ support-free days or survival, where 80.2% of patients in the treatment arm met that primary endpoint. This increased chance of survival or organ support-free days was retained amongst both high D-dimer or low D-dimer cohorts. And in terms of their secondary endpoints, they showed that patients who were hospitalized on oxygen but not in the ICU, who were given therapeutic anticoagulation, showed a lower risk of intubation, death, or arterial or venous thrombosis. And there were 11 more bleeding events in the treatment arm. When the same trial was conducted in patients who were critically ill, they actually found opposite data. They found that patients who were critically ill who received therapeutic anticoagulation who did not have a known clot were actually at higher risk for mortality. And this trial was stopped early because of futility and inferiority. Interesting in this trial, there were fewer clots. There were fewer pulmonary emboli in patients who received therapeutic anticoagulation than those who received prophylactic anticoagulation. However, more patients died. Um, the authors could only speculate as to what the cause was for that. It could potentially be due to alveolar hemorrhage, um, but it was only speculative. Based on those results uh, and other trials as well, um, there amassed a set of data that shows that therapeutic anticoagulation in non-critically ill hospitalized patients probably in uh, improves mortality uh, and definitely improves the uh, risk of venous or arterial thromboembolism. 
and the benefit is likely more pronounced in patients with very elevated D-dimers, and that therapeutic uh, anticoagulation in patients who are critically ill does not improve mortality over prophylactic anticoagulation and could actually be harmful. From there, from anticoagulation, we'll now move on to antiviral or immuno, uh, immunomodulator therapy. And we'll be talking about dexamethasone, remdesivir, baricitinib, and tocilizumab. Um, and rather going through this slide line by line, uh, we're going to be talking about the trials themselves. First and foremost, the ACT-1 trial. Now, the ACT-1 trial uh, was the landmark trial that looked at giving remdesivir to hospitalized patients. Now, this trial looked at hospitalized patients who were not receiving oxygen, who were receiving oxygen at low flow, or for patients who were um, on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. The outcome was time to recovery defined as not hospitalized or hospitalized for a non-medical reason. And they found that patients who were given remdesivir versus placebo had a shorter time to recovery by five days. There was also a trend towards decreased mortality, but it did not reach statistical significance. And this benefit was most prevalent in patients receiving low flow oxygen. They did not find significant benefit in patients who were uh, not hypoxic, and they did not find significant benefit in patients who are sick enough to warrant uh, an ICU level of care. And there have been several other studies that also shows that remdesivir has been beneficial in patients who are hospitalized and on low flow oxygen. More recently, however, there was a trial called the Pine Tree Trial that instead of looking at patients who are hospitalized, looked at patients who are at high risk for hospitalization. So the Pine Tree Trial looked at patients who are 12 years old or older with at least one risk factor for severe disease, or patients who are 60 years old or older. Now, in terms of risk factors for severe disease, that was very liberally defined, including hypertension, diabetes, BMI at or above 30, as well as more significant risk factors such as active cancer or immune compromise. And notably, they excluded patients who were vaccinated. They gave remdesivir to these patients for three days, and they, their primary endpoint was whether or not these patients became hospitalized or passed away. And what they found was that patients who received remdesivir versus placebo were 80% less likely to become hospitalized. Now, from this trial, um, we have started giving remdesivir to patients who are high risk for hospitalization, as well as patients who are hospitalized and hypoxic. However, there is still no great data that shows that remdesivir works for patients who are hospitalized and not hypoxic. And there is no great data that shows that remdesivir works for patients who are sick enough to require ICU level of care. Now, a lot of our trials from Desivir happened early in the pandemic were randomized controlled trials before we had robust data sets for patients who were truly sick. Now, two years into the pandemic, we're able to look retrospectively. So there was recently a trial by 
uh, Garibaldi and colleagues looking at almost 100,000 patients who were hospitalized with COVID over the past two years. And it looked at patients who received remdesivir uh, and retrospectively looked at their outcomes. And what they found was similar to what was demonstrated in the ACT-1 trial of these 97,000 patients, that the patients who had the most benefit were those who were on low flow oxygen, where there was not much benefit in patients who were on room air, and there was not much benefit on patients who were on high flow or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And compared to other trials, this study also showed a significant survival advantage rather than simply an advantage of hospitalization. This next slide shows a graph from, or a table from yet another retrospective meta-analysis that looked at patients who were hospitalized previously. Um, this again shows a significant survival advantage in patients who received remdesivir driven by cohorts on low flow oxygen. Now, I'm gonna take a second to step away from the trials themselves and talk about clinical practice. Um, we currently have an NIH level B2A recommendation uh, to use remdesivir in hospitalized patients who are on low flow oxygen. However, um, in clinical practice, remdesivir is not universally used. Um, and Dr. Alwater, uh, I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts on you know, the different trials of remdesivir and you know, some trials show remdesivir might not be as beneficial as others and kind of the variability in clinical practice with this drug. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Dr. Klimple. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, in the US or North America, I, I think most centers are using remdesivir uh, pretty much according to guidelines. But over the uh, pandemic to date, there have been uh, negative trials uh, that have influenced uh, people to say, well, perhaps the drug uh, doesn't work that well. For example, uh, the Solidarity trial, which was a very large early trial uh, in many countries uh, that uh, had a, it was not placebo controlled. It was a pragmatic trial with four uh, different arms and investigators could actually swap patients. So there are a lot of issues. And in fact, the remdesivir arm was uh, had significant numbers of patients enrolled in Iran, which may not be, of course, the same uh, met level of medical care as the US. So, and there have been other studies like the discovery trial in Europe, which some point to a negative trial, but on subset analysis, much like the ACT-1 trial you spoke of, uh, uh, people who are on a low flow uh, oxygen and so on did seem to derive the similar benefits. So. Uh, you know, it's always been a puzzle that remdesivir, which is an antiviral, uh, uh, works because virologic data, when we look at does the amount of virus uh, decrease when you check swabs or uh, the oropharynx, for example, we don't see marked changes. But of course, that may not reflect what's happening in the lung, which is really one of the primary organs of interest. So I think many of us in the infectious diseases community do feel the drug has has value for patients and a study such as the pine tree data also speaks to how the drug is useful uh, uh, in a more traditional phase of illness the first 
few days of infection before you're in the hospital, the so-called second or inflammatory phases in there. So that's sort of my uh, take on it. Um, and of course, many people in the hospital are just entering that inflammatory phase or 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 there already. So it's a bit unclear exactly uh, how and why it works. But my suspicion is it's working at some level within the lung uh, to help facilitate clearance of virus and, and let the immune system sort of catch up and not overplay trying to clear massive amounts of virus. Thank you so much for that clarification. It's very appreciative. Well, I'm not sure it's a clarification or just a, a, still a discussion point because I think some do argue and and really outside of the U.S. it's the drug is used less um, in, in many countries and of course many trials that we're talking of um, uh, you know a, a subset of people are on remdesivir rather than a universal component of standard of care if it's a multinational trial. Well, I think this is my cue to go on to that uh, uh, so-called second phase of trial, uh, a second phase, I'm sorry, of COVID, and that is that so-called hyperinflammatory response where uh, people become more ill, uh, typically with COVID-19 pneumonia, but can also, uh, of course, go on and have multi-organ system involvement. And uh, as uh, Dr. Klimple mentioned, uh, the pandemic, has certainly changed from when many of these studies uh, occurred. We, you know, we're not dealing with the ancestral strain of virus, but we've gone through Alpha, Delta, and now Omicron. Uh, substantial numbers of our patients now are immunized. So who are we seeing in the hospital? It's people with risk factors and unimmunized. It's people that don't respond well to the vaccine, solid organ transplants, people who might have uh, B cell disorders iatrogenically or due to things like CLL in the patient case we spoke of, uh, and don't respond well to the vaccine, so lack that critical neutralizing antibody response. And, and then uh, other components of both the innate and then subsequently the uh, 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 adaptive immune system uh, kick in and cause that uh, 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 increased cytokine uh, drive uh, that uh, some people call a storm, but really is more of a sort of exuberant uh, hyperinflammatory response. So a surprise, and I think many realize this is now a standard practice, was based on the uh, uh, UK trial uh, performed by the National Health Service called recovery, which has informed many of our decisions, which again um, uh, was uh, a, a kind of trial that did not collect copious data, but was meant to facilitate large numbers to try to get at basic endpoints, such as mortality, uh, discharge from the hospital, and need for mechanical ventilation. And this trial was rather surprising when you looked at the six milligram dose daily uh, that uh, especially when mortality was so high early in the pandemic in the UK and even higher than we saw in the US, that 40% in people in the ICU improved. And even those on, on uh, low flow oxygen also had benefit, which is why now it's been incorporated as a, a high level recommendation, at, at least with remdesivir for people in hospital on oxygen. Importantly, and this is true because in many 
uh, places, I still see uh, uh, outpatients receiving dexamethasone, thinking it will benefit. And there's actually a trend towards poorer outcomes in this circumstance. And of course, we saw in countries such as India, where people had little access to other care, received dexamethasone early in their COVID illness and developed devastating uh, fungal uh, super infections. Uh, one issue is dexamethasone um, is, you know, was picked somewhat arbitrarily at six milligrams. And uh, this was a relatively low dose compared to some of the other steroid trials in ARDS. And so people wondered if a higher dose uh, worked any uh, better. And so studies have looked at here a rather substantial number of patients, uh, 1,000, who, who were hypoxemic, and they did a comparison and found that there was really uh, a longer <laughs> period. And of course, um, this uh, uh, confidence interval uh, was not statistically significant, but uh, basically it means we can stick to that six milligram dose, although you could certainly use equivalent corticosteroids if necessary that other trials have found benefit. Although remdesivir and dexamethasone have uh, become rather fixed in place, uh, there's two other uh, 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 drugs that I'd like to discuss more as classes um, uh, that have really also become incorporated uh, in our practices. Um, and the first is the interleukin receptor blocker, tocilizumab, a monoclonal antibody, not to be confused with the ones uh, directed against anti-spike protein used mostly in outpatients. But this one, uh, of course, targets uh, and prevents uh, interleukin-6 action, which certainly uh, is important for inflammatory responses. Unlike dexamethasone, which is a more broad impact, this one is quite targeted. And indeed, you might remember two years ago plus, the Chinese national guidelines had this as an option for care because people thought uh, it might help the inflammatory responses. Although I don't have the data a num uh, here today because of time, a number of trials that um, use this as a sole agent, meaning you only got uh, tocilizumab if you were in that hyperinflammatory phase, uh, failed and it fell out of favor. But then the recovery trial and some other trials where it was combined with steroids, which had become standard of care, showed uh, a particular uh, aspect of it where when it was combined, there seemed to be benefit. So again, the recovery trial, which had over 4,000 patients, and by this point, most were on steroids, um, uh, generally were on higher flow oxygen, but like all recovery trials, um, the patients got every intervention as because they were hospitalized and doesn't matter if they required oxygen or not. Now, uh, patients uh, generally in the UK were hitting the hospital much later than uh, we usually see in the US, uh, nine to 10 days on average. Um, and uh, you did in this trial, though, need to be uh, with a somewhat suppressed uh, oxygen uh, nation level or require oxygen, and at least for entry criteria in this trial, needed to have an elevated C-reactive protein, which I think is the biomarker we now all rely on to show significant inflammation. 
in most patients and, and has been a predictor for poor outcomes. So uh, this was a single dose of eight milligrams per kilogram. And what you can see on this slide is that there was a benefit in reduced mortality, uh, also a reduction in time or need uh, for ventilation or dying again, um, and some improvement towards discharge. So it seemed this combination of dexamethasone and tocilizumab uh, uh, truly helped. And in a subgroup analysis, interestingly, whether patients had less than seven days or more than seven days, sort of as a breakpoint in that viral or hyperinflammatory phase, uh, tocilizumab seemed to uh, cause benefit. Um, as you can see, um, if people got ill enough to be on the mechanical ventilator by the time they started, which was a much smaller group of patients, uh, they didn't see a statistical benefit uh, there. But importantly, look at the uh, box that is uh, in red. If you were on steroids, you benefited, but much like those early monotherapy trials in the 18% that were not on steroids, uh, it didn't seem to help. So overall, there is definitely a trend favoring tocilizumab. And uh, last uh, summer, there was a time where tocilizumab during the Delta phase was in shortage. Um, and uh, a question came up whether we was whether again it was the right dose or not. Now, importantly, this trial was done during the monotherapy uh, period, so it's a little hard to understand its significance. But rather than um, uh, eight milligrams per kilogram, a fixed dose of 400 of tocilizumab versus dexamethasone only uh, was uh, used. And um, although there was benefit in uh, depression of C-reactive protein, at least in the, this trial, which albeit is small, didn't show any uh, significance. So in a way, it's a bit like a non-inferiority trial. Uh, perhaps there was no difference or certainly no worsening. So the authors here suggest that perhaps if uh, tocilizumab is in shortage, that a lower dose might work. But again, this was not done in the era where it was combined with steroids. Now, uh, tocilizumab has become one of the recommendations for patients that generally have had uh, pro pro progressive uh, 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 COVID-19 infection. So someone that might be admitted on tocilizumab and uh, dexamethasone, I'm sorry, admitted on remdesivir and dexamethasone, if you start moving up to high flow oxygen and so on, uh, would get tocilizumab. Now, uh, there is another class of uh, drugs, such as th this one, baricitinib, uh, approved, for example, by the FDA for rheumatoid arthritis. This is a so-called JAK inhibitor. It inhibits JAK1, JAK2, which is a critical component for activating the so-called STAT pathway that drives cytokine responses, gamma interferon, and such. And so this uh, uh, helps modulate that. And an early trial uh, done just after the remdesivir ACT1 trial was ACT2, which again used it as only monotherapy. There was no combination with steroids. And this did show some uh, decreased uh, time to recovery by one day, but it really never drove much adoption. But then the co-barrier study came up, uh, a larger study, 
that uh, combine baricitinib. And at this point, uh, again, most patients were receiving steroids about 80% because they, it became the standard of care. And uh, the composite primary endpoint was either death or progression to high flow oxygen. And there was a, 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 a trend, but not statistical significance, but intriguingly, all-cause mortality decreased. And this was a little unclear since it wasn't uh, uh, so straightforward that it was um, less time on ventilation and so on. But in uh, subset analysis, those that didn't uh, uh, die or it had the improvement in mortality mostly were driven by the people on that high-flow oxygen, non-invasive mechanical ventilation, which is very similar to the same group that tocilizumab uh, benefits. So this is really probably the sweet spot for this drug as well. And then uh, here we're talking about the recovery trial again. Again, this trial uh, enrolled everybody in the hospital. Most were on steroids. Some also received remdesivir. Uh, and most were, about two-thirds were receiving oxygen, but not everyone. So a little different trial. Uh, and uh, again, there was a small uh, uh, subset that uh, uh, improved in terms of mortality that was statistically significant at 28 days, as well as a suggestion, again, absolute reduction is only 1%, but it was statistically significant given the size of the trial. So looking at all the JAK inhibitors out there, and some of the earliest ones were done without steroids, but most of the latter ones were done with and include not only baricitinib, but uh, other JAK inhibitors. And overall, uh, again, there's a trend towards uh, uh, decreased mortality that, uh, again, plays to the same as uh, tocilizumab. Lastly, uh, baricitinib in the COVE barrier trial was looked at a critically ill cohort. And this uh, was a small group of patients, a little over 100, that again got the standard dose of baricitinib, uh, four milligrams orally per day for up to two weeks versus standard of care. And what they found in this group, again, was a substantial reduction in mortality at both uh, 28 and 60 days. But interestingly, uh, not really any other benefit in terms of mechanical ventilation and so on. So uh, uh, this may work on a variety of issues. Again, this is a small study, probably not enough to say baricitinib should be the treatment of choice in critically ill patients, but I think uh, it remains an option. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, many centers uh, do use this um, or tocilizumab. I, I generally have not heard people using both uh, uh, regularly, but more uh, one favorite than the other. So I hope that was a, a summary of some of the key issues that are so important for care of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. I think Dr. Klimple nicely outlined uh, some of the evolving recommendations in anticoagulation uh, in patients in order to prevent clots, so importantly, not people that have a clot, but for prevention. Uh, we talked about how remdesivir is the only FDA-approved drug currently as a therapeutic for COVID-19, and uh, how it's mainly still being mostly used for people on oxygen, 
in the hospital. The pine tree date is interesting, and I think we might talk about uh, that a little bit in our discussion, uh, which did show a benefit for very early use, enhancing its role as an antiviral, keeping people out of the hospital. But uh, especially during the citrovimab shortage, uh, the, during the Omicron surge, this became a, a, an alternative three-day treatment for even patients in the hospital uh, that uh, fit the bill for not having uh, significant symptoms, but were there for other reasons, such as a GI bleed. Um, uh, lastly, uh, the Garibaldi study looked at a massive amount of healthcare data, and at least by that analysis seemed to suggest there were benefits, certainly in reducing mortality for those on low flow oxygen, which was hard to show um, in a smaller prospective trials. Uh, dexamethasone definitely has been incorporated into our uh, algorithms for uh, patients who are in that hyperinflammatory phase. And lastly, for those becoming more ill, I think tocilizumab or baricitinib are reasonable choices. Of course, we don't have head-to-head -head comparisons of any of these drugs, which makes it very hard to recommend one over the other, but we tend to look at the sheer amount of data that might uh, support a uh, positive aspect in clinical trials. So I hope that was a, a summary. And uh, because this is a CME activity, I'm going to turn it over to Faith. Um, again, thank you everybody for answering those questions here. As a reminder, as we move into the Q&A to submit a question, please click that Q&A button to the left of your console. Uh, we will try to get to as many as time allows. Uh, just as a note here, uh, it's come to my attention that um, perhaps the side deck is not loading the correct one for some people. Um, my apologies for that. Um, I'll double check that and I will email the uh, most contemporary deck to everybody at the conclusion of this webinar. Um, so we're going to move now into the Q&A. Uh, the first question is, are monoclonal antibodies being used in hospitalized patients? Well, uh, maybe David, do you see it used uh, at all in, um, in in patients in hospital? Rarely. Um, I think that when we were dealing with the original surge and the Delta surge, um, more monoclonal antibodies were being used. However, um, uh, as we uh, more and more data came out showing that monoclonal antibodies were really most effective early on in illness, um, especially during the Omicron surge, um, we saw monoclonal antibodies used less and less in inpatients and more and more in a clinic setting. Yeah, I, I think that's right. In fact, uh, you know, the emergency use authorizations from the FDA for the drugs, such as um, more recently citrovimab, which we had to pivot to during the Omicron surge because the earlier monoclonals didn't work uh, well uh, against the new variant. Uh, the the EUAs uh, uh, say not to use it in patients requiring oxygen or um, a critical illness. So it's really only like the patient in our case um, where a monoclonal uh, might be used with mild to moderate disease where you know, gosh, if she hadn't ended up in the hospital because of a GI bleed, she'd be an outpatient and you might consider uh, monoclonal. So you can use them in the hospital, but technically you're supposed to use them 
primarily in uh, patients that uh, uh, fit the criteria for the EUA, or in fact, that's what you're supposed to do. It's interesting that uh, a trial, which we didn't talk about, again, a recovery trial, used very high dose of a monoclonal antibody, the product from Regeneron earlier, but used four grams in hospitalized patients. But the only one uh, group that improved were those people that didn't have pre-existing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So a patient who might have CLL and so on might still benefit, but for the moment, we're rather limited uh, there, um, if someone feels they need antibodies for hospitalized patients, and especially in the immunosuppressed population, uh, that would be uh, convalescent plasma, which is sort of fallen out of favor, but still as an EUA from the FDA, uh, with the focus only for patients who are uh, immunosuppressed and, and therefore really lack antibodies. And so that's really the drug we more often use in a limited number of patients in the hospital now. Okay, fantastic. Um, Dr. Klimple, I'm going to hand this next question to you. Uh, this learner asks, is proning still being used? And if so, when should patients be put in prone position? Great question. Now, the first thing that I will say about this is there's not a lot of great data behind proning. You will not be able to find randomized controlled trials or high quality data around proning because there's such a variable practice. Now that said, um, proning is still being used um, and there is still benefit or is there is thought to be benefit. Um, and there is thought to be benefit in two specific clinical scenarios. The first is in patients who are between low flow and high flow oxygen. So we're trying to prevent uh, someone needing to be on high flow or mechanical ventilation. And proning can uh, theoretically temporize patients. We can get a little bit more time um, to maximize aerated alveoli. Um, and the second population where proning is used is in patients who are, uh, who are undergoing mechanical ventilation where mechanical ventilation is simply not sufficient in a conventional sense to ventilate your patients. Um, proning is not routinely used on all patients who are hypoxic. It is not routinely used on all patients who are on mechanical ventilation um, because it's traumatic to the patient. It causes uh, traumatic dermatological findings. It causes tearing of the skin of the face, the skin of the chest. Um, and it's very time intensive. You need multiple people in the patient's room to move them. So it's definitely still used, but um, in very specific scenarios. Perfect, and thank you for that information. Dr. Allwater, um, maybe you can answer this one for us. Will there ever be a test which can effectively determine a patient's level of immunity against SARS-CoV-2? Right, so you're really asking that uh, question which has uh, been wanting for an answer during the pandemic called, is there a defined correlate of immunity, for example, uh, with either infection acquired immunity or vaccine induced? And the WHO did come up with a standard of uh, over the thousand international units uh, of anti-spike antibodies, which seem to correlate 
with uh, people having neutralizing antibodies, which are really the key ones that um, are clearing the virus. Uh, uh, so, you know, if you, you have over a level of over a thousand, uh, that probably correlates, although Omicron's uh, thrown in a curve because uh, people that might have uh, pre-existing antibodies, of course, um, Omicron uh, was able to break through infection far more than Alpha or Delta. So it remains a moving target. Um, I would say uh, on a prevention basis, some of the patients most at risk uh, do get uh, prophylactic antibodies, so so-called pre-exposure prophylaxis, with a product called Evusheld, uh, which is silagivimab, uh, tixagivimab, uh, for anyone that's uh, very immunosuppressed. And that does have activity against the Omicron variant. Uh, but again, it's everything is imperfect. Uh, and of course, um, we're still hunting for that exact level uh, for confidence. But Importantly, I would just say that if you're immunized and boosted, uh, data available, regardless of your risk group, unless if you're immunosuppressed, your chances of hospitalization or death are, are really extraordinarily low. Um, and um, uh, that's probably the best message we have at the moment. Okay, and to wrap this up here, thank you everybody for um, I'm very excited to have this much time to spend on Q&A. So we'll get one more in before we all say goodbye. Um, is there any value in using 10 days of remdesivir? Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll mention there have been and always early on an option to extend it to 10 days, uh, but a study of five versus 10 days did not find a marked difference. Occasionally, we extend it to 10 days in people with profound immunosuppression or a concept we didn't really talk about uh, in this webinar is assessing cycle threshold. So, you know, for example, in some hospitals, your laboratory might be amendable to providing you with uh, uh, a number from their platform that says how many cycles does it take for the PCR to uh, generate a value? And for example, uh, you know, a level of 14 is far worse than 30, for example. Um, and so in some of our more immunosuppressed patients that may have trouble clearing virus, we have extended uh, or given additional five-day course, but it's really quite the exception. Okay, fantastic. Well, I want to, again, thank our faculty for joining us today and um, giving us all these invaluable insights here uh, for our learners. If you'd like to claim credit, please click that claim credit button. It'll appear when the webcast ends and uh, you should be able to see it now. Um, but please be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll get that in your email inbox. As always, your responses will help us develop further education. Uh, to our podcast listeners, please rate and review. It only takes a few seconds and really helps us grow our channel and our reach. And for those of us showing on YouTube, be sure to take the post test in the description to claim CME credit. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel to never miss our future videos. So thank you again, and we'll see you soon. Dr. Alwater, Dr. Klimple, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks.